So if you have been following along with us over the last couple months, we've been in a series here at Bethany uh, that's focusing on the relationship between our spirits, our souls, and our bodies, right? Spirit, soul, body, which is one way to talk about the human experience. And so last week, Jack focused on a body sermon, and he led us through John 5. We followed the story of a paralyzed man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years, and We followed his journey as he discovered wholeness, and then we're led to discover wholeness in our lives. How can we do that in our lives? Today, we're going to keep the focus on the body, and we're going to zoom out a little bit and explore other ways that Christ followers might live out our faith as citizens of God's kingdom. So we're going to just do the same thing from a little bit different angle. Many of you know that I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, which has a particular emphasis on the movement of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit alive and active today in the world. Some of you may know that I am ordained in the Pentecostal tradition of the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is a Wesleyan Pentecostal denomination. But I'm almost certain that none of you know that the first snake-handling church in America started at the church that is on my my, uh, alma mater's campus. The first snake-handling church. Did I just say snake-handling? Yes, I did. (laughs) Snake-handling was a thing in that church. Yes, that church is still alive. It's huge. No, they don't practice snake-handling. It quickly, the pastor who brought it in, quickly got... Uh, denounced for being reckless and misleading the people of God. And then he started his own denomination in Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia. So he did his own thing. And yes, this is 100% true. You can look it up on Wikipedia. It's there. So all these things, a little absurd, right? I mean, is this what we mean when we say and when we talk about wanting to live an embodied Christian faith? It sounds strange. I mean, the motivation for this pastor and the people who followed him in his denomination uh, really took Mark 16, 17 through 18 very seriously, which says, if you take up snakes and you get bitten or you drink poison, you will not be harmed because God is with you. So they're working from a certain hermeneutic, a certain way of reading the Bible and bringing that out and saying, well... It says there, I'm going to embody that. That's what Christian faith should look like. For most of us, we've grown up in churches that approach worship in ways that privilege belief over practice. So belief is primary, as we're told. Faithful beliefs will result in faithful practices. What we believe or think is what really matters. You know, if... We align the affections of our spirit and our soul rightly, then our bodies logically just will sort itself out, will live in faithful ways. This is how most of us have learned to approach spirituality. But consider this, friends. Richard Rohr, he says, we don't think our way into a new way of living. We live our way into new ways of thinking catchy phrase, right? We live our way into new ways of thinking. Brazilian author Paulo Coelho 
says something similar when he says, the world is changed by your example, not by your opinion. Or hear the words of Australian author Randa Abdel Fattah, who says, belief means nothing without actions. Belief means nothing without actions. What do we make of this, of this reversal of the paradigm, right, that puts practice over belief? While privileging belief over practice may be a more familiar way of looking at our faith, privileging practice over belief can also give us valuable insights into how we actually live out Christianity, right? And so it's not an either-or. We want to be a community that's both-and. And at the same time, we recognize there's nuance for these different ways of framing. And yet, we also want to ask this question, which is central to our faith. What does embodied Christian faith really look like? Like, what does embodied Christian faith really look like? I think we'd all agree it doesn't look like snake handling. Okay, so let's get that on the table. But if that's not that, right, if that's not it, what does Christianity look like when it has flesh and bones? Lucky for us, our passage this morning offers some insights that can help us better embody our faith so with that, let's dive into the text. The text this morning is actually from John 13, verse 2 to 11. If you look in your bulletin, it'll say Luke 13. That was user error. That was just me, okay? So we're actually in John, um, starting at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And Jesus answered him, or washed the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. And he said to Simon Peter, who said to him, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you understand what I have done to you? May God bless the reading of the word. So do you understand what I have done to you? This is a great question, Jesus. Like, what do we think? If you were in that room, at that time, with those people, that group of people, that group of friends, what would you have understood this passage to mean? I mean, what is this passage 
all about. If you had to land on one takeaway from this passage, what would you take away? I'm sure you all have wonderful ideas this morning. And so, if you would, we will actually break into groups of three to five and share what this passage means to us, how you interpret this passage. We'll do this for about three minutes-ish. I'll give a 30-second warning. Find a friend, find a buddy, share your ideas, share your thoughts, and let's discern what this passage might mean to us. Okay? 30 seconds or three minutes on the clock. Find some friends, and let's discuss. All right, friends. Looks like there was some good discussion happening, some good stuff. Thank you for sharing with each other. Does anyone feel brave enough to share with us what came out in your groups? One idea or one thought? Anyone? One or two people? Any thoughts? Let's start with Bennett, yeah. Yeah, the vulnerability, right? Like that thread is, is huge in it for sure. One more thought? Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Bennett and Bill, and everyone else with each other. Certainly there are different threads that we can pull out of this text, right? Many different threads. And we've probably seen uh, different ways that this has happened. I think, this is just an aside, but the strangest way I've seen this text like applied in a church setting is... Obviously, we didn't have enough water and buckets to wash people's feet, and so the people running this, it was a pretty big conference, they got um, shoe shine, and we shined each other's shoes. <laughs> it's strange. I mean, I, there's so many thoughts about that. <laughs> Take that and run with it, do your thing. Um, so with this text, right, let me strangeify the way that we look at this a little bit. Like, see how it shapes a different way of perceiving God. In many Christian traditions that do not physically practice foot washing, this story is kind of strange. It's a little distant. So we either make this move to try and understand it in its historical context, or we try and read it in ways that principalize it. Like, what's the moral of this story? And we take it and do something with that. And I think we reduce this story typically down to two things, right? Be nice to people and serve them. Or like, be humble, serve others. Those are the action steps, the takeaways. Be humble, serve others. I think this is a great thing to glean. Like, we're not saying, don't be humble. We're also not saying, don't serve others. Don't hear that. If you hear that, like, we're misreading each other. That's on me for not communicating. Um, but I think oftentimes we can sometimes miss the kind of life that Jesus is preparing his disciples for in this moment. Like, we're talking about be humble, serve others, but what does that form? What kind of life does that form in the life of the disciples? Here, Jesus is trying to help his disciples and followers See how radical the kingdom of God really is. And the word that we also want to frame is kingdom versus kingdom, right? K-I-N-D-O-M versus kingdom, K-I-N-G-D-O-M. This is an idea that's really prominent in um, some 
Puerto Rican theology as well. Like this idea that the kingdom of God is actually a kingdom or a kingdom that is around relationship and community and belonging. That's what actually grounds the community and the kingdom of God. And so you see, a kingdom becomes a reality when people bind themselves together because they want to honor the image of God that is present in everyone. God's kingdom doesn't happen in any other way. It is actualized, it's realized in community. So it's not a thought experiment or a set of principles, a way of living that is out here. It's kind of ethereal, right? God's kingdom is not imperialist. It doesn't overtake someone to exist. It's cross-cultural. It doesn't draw its power from dominating lesser powers. It's not a kingdom that is rooted in a particular racial or ethnic, ethnic or political identity either. Instead, God's kingdom is the kind of community where everyone has a seat at the table, everyone has a voice, and everyone is able to be heard in a spirit of unity. And there's a couple things that we want to make, even in that sentence, uh, we want to distinguish. There's a difference between unity and uniformity, right? One is making everyone align to the uniform structure that's typically from the top down. That's not the kingdom of God. Instead, many ways, it's a unity that allows for the diversity, even the diversity of ways we've read this text to exist for the purpose of forming the image of God in all of us. That's what the kingdom is. So unity, not uniformity. Also, there's a difference between diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Diversity is having a table with diverse people around it. Inclusion is the diverse voices all having a voice, all being able to speak. But belonging is having that voice be heard by everyone at that table. So diversity, inclusion, belonging, these are different things. And the community and the kingdom of God is a community of belonging. It's a community of belonging. It's not dominated by uniformity. It is a kingdom of unity. And so in this way, God's kingdom is actually a threat to all other earthly kingdoms. And this is the kind of life that the disciples have just been anointed into. The disciples are prepared for life after Jesus' death, and it's a life that strives for success in God's eyes. Maybe that even looks like failure in the world's eyes. This is the kind of life the disciples have just been anointed into. And this is the kind of life that we are washed into. This life in Christ is what Christ followers are meant to embody. But to put a little more flesh on these bones, in Jesus' invitation to be humble, don't miss this right here in the text. Jesus demonstrates humility 
in such a way, in such a radical way, that it opens him up to actually be humiliated. Jesus' act of humility looks a lot like humiliation in the eyes of the world. Because rather than remaining as a person of prominence who has a seat at the table, who it was debatable whether it's guest or host, but regardless, is leading the table, is having space at the table, rather than remaining in that position of prominence, Jesus leaves his seat, he gives up his place, he gives up his privilege, and he takes up the social position of a slave who would have been a commodity or property in that society, not a person. This is the radical nature of God's kingdom, and this is the challenge for us. When C.S. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, like that's a catchy phrase that when I hear humility, I can get on board with that. Like, that sounds good. I can, I can do that. But at risk of my own humiliation, thinking of others rather than myself, even if it means my own humiliation, that's a completely different ballgame. And yet, this is a foretaste of the ultimate humiliation Jesus will have on the cross. I'm not about that life. Like, that doesn't feel nice. I'm also a three on the Enneagram, so humiliation isn't my jam. Like, that doesn't work well. I don't know if it works for anyone, but still. This is the reality of Jesus' actions. And his act of hospitality is an invitation for the disciples and for anyone who calls himself a Christ follower to live primarily as citizens of God's kingdom and recognize that Christ is our king before we pledge allegiance to any other kingdom. Think about baptism for a second. Who's ever heard this? I mean, most of us have grown up in churches where baptism is a public declaration of our faith, right? By this declaration, the old has passed away, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. Does this resonate? So if baptism is a public declaration of our faith where the old passes away and the new comes up, we should ask a question, like, Sin, we, we go down sinful, we come up sinless. Why did Jesus get baptized? If that's what baptism is for us, if that's what we say baptism means, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, he was sinless, wasn't he? He didn't need to have the old pass away, right? How we practice our faith shapes our belief. What we believe shapes how we practice faith. These kind of feed each other. One way to read the book of Matthew highlights many of the connections between Israel and Jesus. So you have 40 years for Israel wandering through the wilderness. You have 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus passes there. You have Israel succumb to temptation after temptation. Then you have Jesus overcome temptation. 
Israel passes from the wilderness, they cross the Jordan, and they get to the promised land. Jesus crosses from the promised land, he gets baptized in the Jordan, and then he's forced into the wilderness. Over and over throughout the whole book of Matthew, we could read that Jesus is reliving Israel's story in redemptive ways. He's doing what Israel couldn't do before. This is one way to read the book of Matthew. However, Jesus' baptism differs from Israel's in one crucial detail. Remember that story, right? The waters, they spread, and Israel marches through on dry ground. Jesus doesn't pass through on dry ground. Jesus suffers immersion in the flood, just as Pharaoh and his armies did. Because Jesus' descent into the waters of baptism involved a deliberate joining in solidarity with the fate of sinners. An intentional, deliberate joining to the people who are unclean. Bob Ecklad, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus' acceptance of this baptism and the entire New Testament teaching on baptism is nothing less than this. It's a call for all future followers, that includes us, to join in the fate of the enemies of God's kingdom. The them that we may deem worthy of exclusion, punishment, or death. Another friend put it this way, underwater, God's chosen people join the damned. In baptism, Christ acts on the water. It's not the other way around. Because see what's happening here. Water, the universal agent of cleansing that separates the clean from the unclean, is changed at Jesus' baptism to become the unifying agent that anoints his disciples in a life of solidarity with the unclean. In John, Jesus changes water into wine. In Matthew, Jesus changes what water can do. And so, in that baptism scene, when you have the Spirit hovering down like a dove and the heavens are rend open, That's echoing the very language of creation when, after the flood, the heavens are rent open, Noah sends the bird from the ark, and it discovers and finds new life as the waters recede. Matthew is a creation story of a new kind of way of living. And it's the kingdom of God about belonging that's that new way. And throughout his whole story, he's trying to convince his disciples of this very reality. That's what it means to embody life with Jesus. So this is what baptism is really about. Christ's baptism affirms our identity and announces our vocation. It tells us what Christian faith should look like. Baptism is not a second birth that gives us a layer of grace that we add onto our lives. Instead, baptism is an act that binds us to sinful humanity. 
so that with Christ we can identify with the work of God that is already happening around us. So baptism doesn't separate us from others. If it separates us at all, it's only ever separation for others. Not separation from others, separation for others. Baptism brings us underwater with Christ so that when we rise out of the water, we can live in solidarity with the enemies of God. Okay, Silas, so that was a really nice pitch, right? Great job. Good elevator pitch. But still, what does embodied faith look like? You told us why we should live in embodied faith, but what does it actually look like? A couple years ago, I saw an exchange on Twitter that was absolutely incredible, which is unique for Twitter because Twitter is Twitter. Um, It was truly incredible. It was Sarah Silverman responding to a troll who had harassed her online. I'm going to read their interaction and take note of how she responded. You guys are also thinking, snake handling Sarah Silverman, it's a good day. Um, Here's what Sarah says. I believe in you. This is responding to someone who's just harassed her. I believe in you. I read your timeline. I see what you're doing, and your rage is thinly veiled pain. But you know that. I know this feeling. P.S. My back blank sucks too. So what happens, or see what happens when you choose love. I see it in you. This troll responds by saying, I can't choose love. A man that resembles Kevin Spacey took that away when I was eight. I can't find peace. If I could find that guy who ripped my body, who stripped my innocence, I'd kill him. He effed me up and I'm poor, so it's hard to get help. And Sarah responds by saying, I want to kill him too, so I can't imagine your rage. All I know is this rage, this, this rage. And even if you could kill him, it's punishing yourself. And you don't deserve punishment. You deserve support. Go to one of these support groups. You might meet your best bros there. And she lists a whole bunch of support groups. The troll responds by saying, I will go, but I trust no one. I've been burned so many times. I'd give the shirt off my back, and every time I get burned, I'm super antisocial, I have no friends, I'm sorry I gave you ish. And then she says, I'm so psyched you'll go, keep me posted. Don't give up on yourself. Be brave enough to risk getting burned. It's it's what happens when you fight for yourself, but it's worth it every time, I promise. Sarah later tweeted out asking her followers if anyone could help this guy with his back and with counseling. And then she offered and she paid for his medical bills. Sarah Silverman. This is holiness in action, friends. Literally playing out the Good Samaritan story. Actually doing it. 
This is Christ-likeness personified. This is what embodied Christianity should look like. It's not a marketing ploy. It's not a publicity stunt. This is what happens when someone is able to look at someone else with eyes of compassion, see pain, and respond to that pain with love that is unconditional and freely given. If we want to see what embodied Christianity looks like, sometimes we need to start looking in places where we don't expect to find God. If the band could come up. What does your embodied faith look like? Friend, does your faith look like Jesus? Does the way you practice your faith separate you from others, or does it bring you into relationship with others? If we call ourselves Christians, our embodied faith should look like Jesus. And the question that was running through my mind all week was, is this true in my life this week? Is this true? That's the question we're landing on today. Is this true in your life? Madeline Engel, she tells a story about this rabbi friend who um, is an older rabbi, and the younger rabbi comes to him and says, Rabbi, in the olden days, there were people who saw God. Why doesn't anyone see God nowadays? And the rabbi pauses and looks into the young rabbi's eyes and says, Nowadays, nobody can stoop so low. What is our posture in how we engage the world? And how do we embody Christian faith? There's no one answer, follow these steps and check, you're, you're doing it, right? But I think we can see glimpses, and they might even be glimpses in places that we don't expect God to be. So my prayer for us this week is, can we be open enough? Can we be humble enough to allow God to actually speak to us through the community of God, but also through the creation of God? If anything has stirred in you as we've heard and reflected on this word, we have Heather and Dave, and they're more than happy to pray with you, to process with you. But let me pray for us as we finish this word this morning, and let us discern the character of God. God, hear the cries of our hearts, a cry that desires to open ourselves up to your work, to press through humbleness and humility when it is costly, to be your presence in the world, even if it means giving up our presence in the world. You don't replace our presence, but you invite us into yours. May we be attuned to the ways that you are calling us,
And may we respond with grace and love just as you have responded with foot washing and on the cross. We want to be people of your spirit. Make us people of your image. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the spirit. Amen and amen. Let us respond in song, friends.